Hey, greetings, everyone. Happy pre-FOMC day. It's Samantha Leduc, founder of LeducTrading.com. And I'm joined by our macro advisor, Craig Shapiro, for our macro advisor, Edge product for clients. And we're here to discuss all things macro and how we can operationalize that into some micro actionable kind of trading strategies. And uh, how are you today, Craig? I'm doing well. How's it you going? sound great. <laughs> and love your new profile picture. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> um, I'm coming off, as you know, a little uh, break yep. last week. My daughter was visiting from Zurich. We did a whole bunch of traveling, literally from Georgia to Lake Placid. <laughs> nice. Very nice. Very um, and New York City in between. So it was what you'd call a whirlwind. Um, so I'm playing a little bit of catch up, but um, obviously all eyes on Fed Day tomorrow. And then, of course, this momentum rally that um, you and I have really been sizing up and timing since the beginning of January. I called it kind of the January effect, where a lot of the oversold, left for dead, high IV, high beta, um, bankruptcy risk plays would start to percolate up off the bottom, whether it be post-tax loss selling and then just that kind of oversold rally for January. But it is definitely, definitely, definitely now converted many a bear into a bull position. Um, so we're going to talk about that a little bit to see, you know, what has changed in one month, literally, since this market started to stabilize um, around January 5th. But even before that, back in mid-October, we had a whole bunch of intervention, whether it was the Fed whisperer um, at uh, Nick Tamaros from the Wall Street Journal floating that article by the Fed that they would consider a pause, to the Bank of Japan intervention of size to support their bond market on October 21st, which definitely continued um, the bullish sentiment, including and not limited to um, a US dollar swap that the Fed did with the Swiss National Bank to the tune of 18 billion. So we had a whole bunch of macro um, kind of congruence of events in mid-October that I think put a bid um, in the and creation of a short-term bear market rally. And then it further got supported, obviously, in, for, by the January effect. So we have a momentum rally of size. And I have kind of uh, shared that um, picture, which to me is the most important one. Let me just show you this screen for those who are interested in why it really, really... Hold on, let me share this. Really matters to risk assets that we have rotation and why it may not benefit to get so, so, so excited um, until you and I can kind of talk through the macro implications of um, tomorrow's FOMC and earnings and recent economic data. So I think I just shared this. Yes, I did. All right, so this was just, I want to get this kind of out of the way. I'm going to ask you a whole bunch of questions and share lots of your um, thoughts and reflections on assets right now, risk reward, um, fixed income, credit markets, obviously um, the, the Fed expected moves this year. But this is the chart I really, really just wanted to start off with from a micro standpoint, right? This is my version. I have several of, of growth to value rotation and how we triggered right here. On uh, January 4th, actually, volume started coming in. We had a big spike on Friday, January 6th. And then the rest, as they say, is history. And then just yesterday, because this was actually taken 
um, this morning, but it's a kind of an end of day value. It basically tagged a little bit of this trend line and pulled back. And I'm expecting a bigger test of this daily trend line before we get a real, real test of the strength of this momentum thrust off the January lows. So what's what's your thinking on this recent rally that we've had since January, but also um, mid-October? Yeah, I, I mean, I would say just thinking about um, this rally since, you know, mid-October, I think the biggest, you know, driver of this has been the dollar. Um, and I know you pointed this out, um, you know, with the BOJ stuff in the middle of October. And, you know, there was uh, an IMF meeting in, in D.C. in the middle of October where, um, you know, I don't know if we're going to look back and say that was some sort of, you know, Washington Accord or something to uh, weaken the dollar. But, you know, in hindsight, it sure it sure looks like it. I mean, the dollar is the DXY has moved about eleven percent since the middle of October. So you're talking about you know close to forty percent annualized move here. And I think you've coined the phrase "the dollar makes the weather" or, or something something like that. And I, I think that yeah. that really helped um, loosen uh, financial conditions. It's 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 helped uh, you know bring down some of the inflation uh, overseas, and it's brought back a bid into the duration of the treasury market. And, and we've kind of created a little bit of this virtuous you know circle where um, the yield curve. Flattening and inversion has led long end yields lower, which has uh, allowed multiples to expand in the U.S. Even though earnings are not getting better, and we've kind of uh, you know created this you know drastic loosening of financial conditions on a Fed pause and you know the coming of Fed rate cuts uh, later this year on soft data and I don't know. To me, it's it it, it all sounds like the market front running the front run of the front run uh, in, in a lot of ways, um, really getting out way ahead of what the Fed uh, has said it is going to do, um, which was, you know, uh, further uh, um, discussed at the December meeting and the the, the raising of the dot of the uh, the dot plot, uh, the terminal rates, and then reiterated in the minutes uh, in early January where they discussed an unwanted easing of financial conditions, but the market is doing what the market does um, and is basically, you know, calling BS on the Fed's ability or desire or um, whatever to uh, to tighten further to address um, inflation. So uh, here we are. Um, you know, I, I guess I'm not entirely surprised that, you know, these, uh, that crypto is rallied and that Shit codes for back, lack of a better word, have rallied, and meme stocks have rallied um, all into you know tomorrow. Um, yeah. And and we will, you know, we we will learn whether or not, or we will learn more information about whether or not Powell um, is actually going to be more like Volcker, or will he be more like Burns? And that's something that we've been discussing for a while. So. And now I found it interesting that you led with the dollar. So I very quickly tweeted this, by the way, <laughs> just to give some precedent, just to get some um, some context to how sizable this has this move has been. Um, the dollar index is down more than 8% over just a dozen weeks, a virtually unprecedented drop over such a short period. And this is the level at which we have moved. And my saying is, uh, the U.S. dollar makes the weather and its rate of change determines its velocity. So this rate of change is very, very quick, um, which is basically the uh, the point that this chart shows. And interestingly, though, 
and obviously has has given a tailwind to the bulls, right? I mean, it perfectly timed its pullback, the Dixie, with all the macro events that we've just talked about, right? So this Bank of Japan intervention, uh, the Fed, you know, intonated pause um, on top of the SNB and other uh, U.S. dollar swaps, all in mid-October. That's exactly when the dollar started coming down with yields and risk assets started getting supported. There was a lot of chop during all that economic data, um, CPI in particular, and the, the FOMC meeting back in November and then again in December. But big picture, we've just gone sideways, right? But the dollar has not. It has really sizably continued lower. So I had posted um, last week when I was here on Monday, you know, I still have some levels that I've talked about for a while with clients of this seeing 98. We haven't even gotten to 101, which is kind of this. We did already take out the COVID um, high, the freak out, right? Risk off rotation into the dollar of 104. Um, but we've got a little bit of consolidation here in this 101 area, and that's actually where we are now. So a lot of folks are expecting some type of bounce because it's an extended um, pullback and can have a ricochet effect higher. What do you think would be the trigger for um, a move higher in the dollar? Because right now, all it's doing is after a long, lovely move higher, almost parabolic, uh, into 114.75 Dixie, it actually has come all the way back down into this it's almost 101, this trend line. You can't see it because I have this was a week old. Uh, actually, this is two weeks old, but you get the idea. What's going to be a macro trigger for a higher dollar in your assessment? Yeah. Um, the other thing not mentioned, which has helped uh, the dollar um, fall, has been the, the the reopening in China, or at least the narrative around the reopening in China. Um, and so that that's that's kind of added fuel to the fire for the dollar's weakness. But ultimately, um, the trigger is the Fed. Um, and that starts tomorrow. Um, you know, you have a market that is not believing two things or, or several things, but specifically two things. One, the terminal rate that the Fed put out in its dot plot in December had 17 of 19 officials with a five handle um, on their terminal rate. Uh, the market's kind of currently pricing in, uh, you know, or five handle meaning five point one percent or higher, because that'd mm -hmm. be five five to five and a quarter. And some people are higher. Uh, the terminal rate now, as priced by markets, are about four ninety one, four ninety two. So we're we're nearly a height less than where the Fed's dots uh, suggested in December. And then secondly, Powell, in the conference call, I'm in the in the press conference said. Not one official was looking for any rate cuts in 2023. Um, and through some Fed comments uh, earlier this year, Bostic had been saying, you know, no cuts, you know, well into 2024. And others as well have talked about no cuts uh, into 2024. The market is pricing in close to two cuts uh, this year and six cuts between now and the end of 2024. So the market has run far ahead of what the Fed said uh, it is most likely to do only six weeks ago. And, and the reason for that is because we continue to see a deterioration in, in the data, um, both on the inflation side and on the employment side. Mm -hmm. But that deceleration or deterioration of data is still coming from levels that are so well above kind of Fed mandate that 
I, I think the market has, has, has taken that data deterioration, you know, way too far. I mean, the fall in inflation expected, we were, we're, you know, we're still looking for, you know, in the January prints, headline CPI is going to be 6%, core PCE just printed 5%. I mean, these are not 2% readings. Um, the ECI, which is the Employment Compensation Index that came out this morning, which had been well flagged by the Fed as a trigger for uh, some momentum uh, on the on the labor front, came in at 1%, which is 4% annualized. That's not 2%. Um, you know, that's not consistent with 2% inflation. So yes, the data on the inflation side is getting better, but we are still far away from getting to the 2% mandate. And what the Fed has said is they need to see a slowdown in the labor market. They need to see more job cuts, a pickup in the unemployment rate towards 4.5% this year in order to see that inflation come down towards 2%. I just don't think we've seen enough data on that front yet. It's likely that we will get there, but we're not there yet. So I think the question that the, well, the market is basically saying, well, we're going to get there. We're not going to get there yet. doesn't matter. We're going to get there. Let's price it in now. And I think the Fed's view is we need to continue to be tight in order to create the conditions necessary to get there. And so I think tomorrow you will get some pushback from Powell on market pricing. There will be some discussion about how financial conditions have been easing materially, mm-hmm. and, but it's not, it's, you know, it, it's, it's a tough narrative. It's a tough game for him because he's not going to go 50. He's going to go 25. Um, it's not going to be easy for him to convince the market that he's serious. So, um, you know, we'll have to see how, uh, how, how he does it. Um, there may be some, some subtle changes in the statement. There certainly will be some Q and A about it. Um, I expect him to try to be resolute in his seriousness about making sure that inflation is stomped out and that just because we have a step down doesn't mean we're finished. Um, but the market believes that uh, you know, there's an increasing odds that, that they're done after this hike and that they won't be hiking in March. So I think that's you know, something that he needs to, he needs to reconcile. So you think that they will follow through with what the market seems to be pricing in or they will not and market will be disappointed? I think the market will be disappointed. Um, I think that he will speak hawkishly in a way to push back against the market's pricing on both the terminal rate and on the duration that it will stay at terminal. So I would expect to see some language from him, which discusses, uh, which, which which pushes the terminal rate back towards 5% or above, that would be aided by a strong labor print on Friday, which, um, you know, is, is very important. I think if we were to get a strong labor print, both on the payroll creation and on the wage front, that would add credence to this idea that the Fed is going to be higher for longer. Um, so that I think that one-two combination could really push the terminal rate back above 5%. And then as far as duration is concerned, I think he will speak to this idea that as of the last summary of economic projections last meeting, no Fed members were expecting any rate cuts this year. I think he'll reiterate that. And Mm -hmm. I think he'll reiterate that despite the the data that we have seen to start the year, um, he'll say that's, you know, this is expected and we still expect no rate cuts this year. So that'll be a way to, to push back. I think if he were to do both of those things, the market would be disappointed. Um, the curve would would 
uninvert a little bit, the dollar would rally. And given the high correlations of the dollar with every other financial asset that we've seen, whether it be gold or Bitcoin or meme stocks or anything that has been driven by this improved liquidity from a weakening dollar, I think that would all start to reverse, uh, you know, upon that. Now, we still have to get through earnings. We still have to get through this that data point on the payroll. We still have mm-hmm. to get through CPI in two weeks. So, there, you know, there, there's there's consistent data that, that comes, but... I think that would be the message, uh, you know, after after tomorrow. All right, I have a chart I want to show because it kind of um, it, a little apps. Let's see if I've got this right one. I do have the right one. All right, so I have just a a, a wonky kind of way of saying the Fed is trapped. It is similar, I think, to what you described from a macro standpoint, and you have some charts that you um, want me to bring up, and I definitely want to do that so we can talk through those. This is kind of a funky intermarket analysis chart that I did, and I've tracked over the years, literally decades. Um, I started posting this in, in the last year where we had basically overshot. So this trend line basically of when you know rate hiking cycles end Um, Traditionally, anyway, back in April 1995 and June 2000, July 2006. Um, This is just the the formula that I use, but basically also this August 2020 bonds are done going up call. We actually broke below this major trend line. And I kind of euphemistically said um, Fed is trapped. Uh, maybe down here they try to pivot, but right now all we've done is overshot or over tightened and kind of moved back in. So that is trapped from this standpoint is kind of an intermarket read for me. But from a macro standpoint, um, I have it's more akin to this inflation falling recently has really um, ignited the animal spirits, right? So the market is very excited about um, deflation. And, uh, you know, earnings expectations have been obviously ratcheted down so they can step over very easily. But um, there's not pricing in an economic recession, just kind of a a short term um, EPS recession. So right now, inflation falling is helping the market uh, bid up equities in this uh, flight to momentum because Fed will pause, actually step down, pause, and then cut. My assessment is a little bit different. This whole financial conditions of uh, being, I would say, loosened dramatically since October, since they align very, very closely with uh, market returns, interestingly enough, has actually created more demand side inflation. Wages are still firm, even if their rate of ascent is slowing. Housing is still quite sticky. We saw pending home sales, very strong. Um, Yes, we had durable goods inflation fall, but services inflation, largely wages has been very, very strong. Unemployment, very, very low. Unemployment claims falling, not rising. All the things that you've highlighted. So to me, the very fact that inflation has fallen is giving this, um, you know, the, the, the bull market, um, uh, a chance to obviously support the Fed's soft landing um, basis. But wages still are the reason for the season. You've talked about this, and I've written about this, right? Since October of 2021, wages um, over productivity gains are going to be the enemy of bonds, and they're still um, above productivity gains. They're also um, not 
the, the prices that co corporations are passing on to the consumer are being absorbed. So right now you can see it in earnings. Um, this to me is just keeping the whole inflation story well bid. At what point do you think the conversation would turn from, okay, Fed isn't going to cut this year. We actually have an inflation uh, strength underneath the surface structurally that will create a narrative of it's time for the Fed to hike again. So again, Fed is trapped as, our, as far as I can see. Whatever they don't do at tomorrow's meeting and in March will actually trigger that fear that uh, they've gotten way ahead and we're going to actually start to pivot higher. But I think that's probably another, another quarter to go. Yeah, I mean, stepping back, I, I think, and I kind of tweeted about this earlier, and I've spoken about this at, at at length. But you know, I think the Fed is is in this this vol dampening business. I think what they're trying to do is they're trying to keep you know kind of broad based volatility or financial conditions within a range that allows them time to see the data come through as they expect, and in this case, meaning the time to bring down inflation uh, back down to 2% without seeing inflation expectations uh, rise you know, too aggressively or become unanchored. So what I mean by that is when they were on a path towards you know, tightening aggressively, um, you know, going from 25 to 50 to 75, um, in, into Fed meetings where vol was incredibly elevated or into speeches where you know, volatility was elevated. Powell would would say something, or speak, you know, or Brainerd, or somebody would come out to say something to kind of dampen down the expectations of over tightening. And they did that because while they're trying to achieve, you know, the slowdown of inflation and return to mandate, they also don't want to tank the economy and tank asset prices and destroy the government balance sheet and 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 the like. So if all gets too high, they speak, they bring it down. But mm -hmm. similarly, when financial conditions loosen too aggressively, um, it's possible that that could lead to a reacceleration of inflation expectations. The dollar falls, uh, animal spirits come back, inflation expectations rise, commodity prices rise, like we've seen to start the year, gasoline's up, oil's up, sugar's up, ags are up, lumber's up. So we, we've created a situation where inflation expectations have started to rise again. Um, and when that happens, the Fed needs to come back in and kind of reintroduce volatility to the market in order to prevent those animal spirits from getting out of control. So broadly speaking, the, the, in my view, the Fed is a buyer of vol when the VIX is under 20 and they're a seller of vol when mm. the VIX is over 30. So what we've, what we've had when, up until, let's say, two weeks ago, financial conditions had loosened mightily but inflation expectations were not rising. But over the last couple of weeks, inflation expectations have started to rise again. And I think for the Fed, that's a problem. So um, I think I gave you that chart. Um, maybe not, but I can. This one? There was a five US five-year, five-year um, inflation. This one is the- uh, uh, that, that's, 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 financial, that's financial conditions index. Here it is. Yeah, five years. Is this the correlated with gasoline prices, correct? No, that's just that's just the gasoline. Sorry. Okay. I think Bring I them all up. <laughs> gonna send it. Here, it gonna... here it is. Here it is. Yes. Yes. Yep. Okay. So I mean, it's a busy chart, but if you you, you know it, 
if you see there's a, you know, down the middle of December there towards the last meeting, it kind of got down very close to 2%. And then even uh, more recently uh, in the middle of January, again, kind of down, you know, nearly towards 2%. But since let's say the, the middle of January toward, you know, up until at least two days ago, it had kind of moved 25 basis points higher, um, which is a lot. I mean, this is a, you know, again, it's a busy chart, but they don't, what I'm saying is when it gets down towards 2%, that's risk of, of, you know, the market kind of not believing, um, stepping back. When that gets down towards 2%, that's them saying, okay, that, that mission has been accomplished. But when that starts to rise again, then there's this concern that inflation expectations can move back higher again. So I think they're, again, they're, they're kind of preventing against both. They're preventing against a deflationary bust. They're preventing against inflation expectations rising too far out of control. So I think for tomorrow, it's another buying time uh, event, but this time it's it's different in that they're buying, they, they need to take volatility back up now in order to buy time because they don't want inflation expectations to, to re-engage. And if you look that's at- my, That was my point. I mean, the, yeah. the loosening of financial conditions is basically going to trigger demand side inflation. I mean, whether it be in the falling, you know, 30-year mortgage rate, and it's already spurring, um, you know, buyers to step back in faster. Uh, it's definitely showing their hand that right. inflation can lumber. We've, you know, talked about um, as an oversold asset popping up with lots of other meme stocks. But the point is, it's actually a major tell that there's also um, commodity strength in the past few months, for sure, since financial conditions have eased, which is yeah. all going to trigger this inflationary um uh, you know, worry again. So again, I, I I agree that they're more hawkish than dovish come tomorrow, but big picture this whole year, it's going to be a dance wherein I think they're just trapped as it relates to um, if they do too much and it, inflation falls, expectations fall too fast, then they come back in and, you know, try and prop it up. And then the, and then, then the reverse happens. It gets out of control on the other side, not out of control, but it, it's basically like, the pendulum swinging both ways. Um, it's going to be a, a dance this, this year of basically biding your time on short covering rallies, whether it be um, growth or value. It doesn't really matter. I think it's going to be a, a snake-like event all year. Yeah, and I sent that. That's why I sent that uh, gasoline chart over. I mean, you know, you can see gasoline is kind of the biggest driver of headline inflation changes. Um, and so gasoline had been up kind of 17 days in a row. It was a little bit flat over the weekend. And you can see there on the far left side here, the, the light blue bar is where uh, 2023 gasoline is. The green bar is 2022. So you could already see we're at prices that are higher year on year. This actually is a 15 year high for gasoline prices for this time of year. So you know, look, last year we had these big spikes because of the, the, the Ukraine war. I'm not suggesting that we're going to see a similar um, spikes, although it's, you know, the Ukraine stuff has kind of fallen off the table. We'll see what happens there. But we're already, because of this, getting pressure on the headline inflation uh, front again. The Cleveland Fed um, nowcast has put out a, a forecast for January headline inflation at 0.63. Um, it was negative last month. So, Again, you're you're talking about, you know, it was negative in December. It's reaccelerating to 0.63 in January. The market is saying, well, that that doesn't matter. It's just energy. So let's, you know, the Fed's not going to care about it. 
I would argue the Fed, the Fed is looking at the, you know, it's looking holistically at inflation. It's very, it'll be very difficult for them to kind of signal a success if commodity prices are rising once again, food prices are rising. I mean, there's these stories about egg prices. I know they were kind of ridiculous, but, you know, food and energy is what people buy. And so it's going to be hard for the Fed to declare victory on inflation when commodity, if if and when commodity prices are reaccelerating, and part of what will reaccelerate them would be a further weakening of the, of the dollar. So I think tomorrow, some hawkish pushback, the dollar finds its sea legs, starts to rally again. You know, a kind of counter trend bounce here. I think risk asset prices uh, don't like that, and you know, correct, and then. We'll see how the data progresses. If the labor data on Friday is terrible, right, then people will say, okay, the Fed was wrong. They're definitely going to pivot. And the Fed may say, yep, we were wrong. Or if the inflation print in 10 days from now, again, is is very weak and the Cleveland Fed forecast was wrong, then the market will go back to this, this pricing narrative. But I think the Fed tomorrow wants to push back and kind of reset the bar um, to let the data, you know, play out. All right, so we're we're definitely in agreement. I had asked you also if uh, you thought um, Powell would do anything about tightening the financial conditions through increasing QT, and you said no. Yeah, like I think I don't I don't suspect that they are going to up the pace of QT, but there have been comments um, recently from some Fed officials, kind of discussing the optimal level of reserves. And mm-hmm. some market participants had been concerned that reserves were falling, and that that picture there is net liquidity. So that's not just reserves, but mm-hmm. um, that reserves have been falling so rapidly that by the middle of this year, um, you know, they would breach uh, three trillion in reserves, and that there, that would be an issue. And the Fed's not trying to create is not trying to create that that banking issue. And what Waller and Lori Logan. Um, and a couple of others have said is actually you need to be thinking about bank reserves um, as reserves plus cash available in the reverse repo facility, because if banks are looking for reserves, they could pay up and buy them and and, 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 and not buy them, but um, attract them by taking the money out of, to take the money out of the RRP. So what that, that signals is that it's likely the Fed is going to continue with QT you know, throughout all of 2023. And they've also said that in an environment where a theoretical environment where the Fed is actually cutting rates, they can continue doing QT, which is something that the market had not expected. I don't believe people thought it was possible that when the Fed is cutting rates, they also could be doing Mm -hmm. QT because there's a little bit of inconsistency there about stimulating the economy versus contracting liquidity. But what they're saying, and I think Powell may speak to this tomorrow, um, is that it is possible for them to be cutting rates in the future, but also continuing to do QT because QT is is a search for the optimal level of reserves in the financial system. And right now, there's way too many when you combine what's on bank balance sheets and what is in the RRP. And so uh, the Fed wants to see the, the collective of those continue to fall uh, to a point, I think Waller had said, kind of low double-digit percentages of, of GDP. So, you know, we could be talking about another trillion and a half to two trillion of balance sheet reduction, you know, over this year and into next year, which I think, um, you know, based on my framework about Fed liquidity being the 
I don't know, the mother's milk of risk asset pricing. Um, uh, you know, I think that is a that is a headwind. And that, you know, that chart you have there, the net liquidity chart, mm -hmm. um, in that environment, would you'd see that white line continue to fall. Um, and as the white line, the net liquidity line is falling, you know, it, it's it's harder for that for the SP and for risk assets to continue their upward ascent. Um, you know, one of the things that had had helped the white line and had added liquidity had been the treasury drawing down its cash at the fed uh, kind of because of this whole debt ceiling saga um that is something that will continue into the next you know few months here as the as the treasury and and congress are dealing with the debt ceiling debate um treasury has actually added 200 billion back to the treasury general account over the last two weeks so they've taken they've, they've drained liquidity in that regard uh, tomorrow morning at 8.30, we get some more information uh, from the Treasury Borrowing Committee that'll give some insight onto, um, you know, how they expect to issue bills and bonds in the next uh, six weeks. So that there could be some insight there. But um, and you talk to this chart, which, by the way, is only updated on Thursday through TradingView. So it is not real time, just to kind of clarify. But Fred balance sheets overlaid with SPY. Yeah, I mean that that chart is basically is very similar to the chart that I that you showed before. There's really not yeah. much of uh, of a difference there. The difference is that, like to your point, this chart that you have is the Fed is just the Fed balance sheet versus the S and P. What I'm what my chart is, it kind of tries to parse out the some of the moving pieces, and, and others are doing this as well. It's, it it kind of parses out the reverse repo, which moves daily, and mm -hmm. the Treasury general account, which also moves daily um with a one day lag uh where you get the data so it's uh it's a, you know what i'm looking at is a little bit more uh is a little more real time i don't think you could trade that this correlation on a daily basis but i think you can have a sense of how much liquidity is being added or contracted over let's say the coming 2 to 4 weeks and whether or not that's going to be bullish or bearish for risk broadly speaking and maybe use that as a as a bias tool. And I think between now and the next two weeks, you're going to continue to have liquidity drain. Um, and we, we're continuing that at, with from a period where the S&P is already kind of disconnected from the, the liquidity drain we've already seen. So uh, I'd expect the S&P to catch down to where the liquidity uh, is. Okay. Um, so I'm waiting to see if we're going to obviously hit and get rejected from this momentum rally. I can, as I mentioned, kind of coming into the week, um, this is where it would be most likely to pause and digest and any late bulls to this party uh, would be obviously, um, you know, bears and bulls can both suffer. But in particular, I think this is where we're gonna have a little bit of a pause. So the narrative for tomorrow is we, uh, so much. We'd be rallying strongly if it was absolutely 99% guaranteed that we would just have a, you know, a 25 basis point um, increase and then a pause in March and, and a cut end of year. That's basically what the, the market has priced in. In the meantime, we've had a really big move higher in gold, and that gets asked a lot. Um, gold versus dollar, this is obviously inverted. You can see that it has been uh, tied to the hip. I contend it's still back in that October 21st Bank of Japan intervention and all the dollar swaps and obviously the uh, intonation by the Fed that they would consider a pause, et cetera, et cetera, and inflation expectations coming down with CPI. Anyway, it lit gold on fire um, and dollar obviously has fallen 
strongly. What's your take on gold moving forward? Uh, because it is a very big move, uh, relatively speaking, in the past three months. Yeah, I think gold has you know some structural uh, things that are that are very beneficial, which we've talked about uh, before, which have to do with gold becoming more of a neutral reserve settlement asset as trade starts to morph away from the US dollar specifically as you know China and Russia transact more for commodities away from dollar as Saudi and China do the same and and more reserves over time will be held uh in gold as opposed to in US treasuries and actually the IMF just wrote a paper about the role of gold um in in reserves and so I think this is becoming more kind of known and aware and foreign central banks in the fourth quarter, I think had bought the most amount of gold uh, mm-hmm. yeah. that we've seen in, in quite some time. So I think there are some structural central bank flows um, and geopolitical dynamics that are helping the gold price. And that's why the gold price has largely disconnected from its historical correlation to rising to real, to real yields. Normally in a rising real rate environment, you'd see gold, uh, suffer, but this time it really hasn't. It's been rallying, even though real rates have moved higher. That being said, gold is a dollar commodity also. And so I think a lot of what we've seen here in the strength of gold has just been the inverse of the dollar. Mm-hmm. Um, as the dollar and many is commodities. Yeah. yeah. And so I think I think that's been, you know, the the octane behind gold's, you know, more cyclical move. And so to the extent that um the dollar were to find a floor here on a more hawkish Fed that brought yields up, I, I do think gold would would suffer um, alongside other you know dollar assets and equity and equities as well. Um, but I, I don't I think because of some of these structural issues and structural forces, it's unlikely that gold would would suffer a a, a massive correction, particularly if we were kind of moving into an environment where the U.S. is slowing and a recession is likely. Um, and at some point later this year, the Fed actually would be forced to be adding liquidity. I think gold would sniff that out. And so, uh, you know, I see gold, you know, short term, maybe exposed on a dollar rally, but so a, a rally a rally to be bought on some of these more structural issues, as well as the likelihood that the Fed will, will eventually this year um, have to have to add back liquidity to a slowing economy. All right, let's talk about earnings. I'm and a few Q and A questions, especially from Hunter, because he's got a he's got a good one. But first, let me just um, bring up. Wait a second, earnings charts. Forgive me, am I showing this right now? I am not. Let's share this chart. Yeah, so lots going on right now um, because we're in the meat of earnings season. We've already had. Um, I mean, this week, it's 20% of the S&P, but we've had 29% reports so far. And uh, they have uh, obviously revised their estimate. Analysts have revised uh, downward at an accelerated pace in the past six months. We had kind of peak earnings valuation back in April and June, and it's obviously coming back down um, so they can step over. But in in large part, we've definitely had uh, a miss Um, on the top and bottom line so far. And the expectation is that we are going to have the next three quarters of negative uh, EPS. This is is actual, this is, you know, estimated. 
uh, negative um, EPS uh, comps. And that's what a lot of folks are very focused on for that kind of recession worry. And yet, <laughs> there the analysts also see a very strong, very strong move into the end of uh, 2023 and beyond of, I think it's like 10.6% increase. So they're not seeing a recession um, in the economic sense, just a short-term EPS-only recession. So they've really kind of just moved right past that. Uh, we've already kind of brought down the estimates, stepped over the estimates, uh, even if they the majority have have uh, have kind of disappointed on top and bottom lines, the one day reaction so far has been very positive. So they are excited <laughs> about not having um, an economic recession and the Fed uh, giving them Goldilocks. what's your what's your sentiment on the uh, the earnings right now and the the, the the repricing that may be in line? Um, moving forward at the end of 2023. Yeah, I mean, I think that hockey stick projection for earnings reacceleration is is ridiculous. Um, I, I don't really know how it would even really be possible uh, to see that kind of trajectory with, first off, a, a very likely sizable fiscal cliff that's coming because of this debt ceiling. Um, that will be a headwind for growth as we exit 2023 and kind of get into 2024. But also um, in an environment where the Fed is being, you know, is going to keep rates higher for longer, uh, you know, it's not clear to me where the growth momentum is going to come from uh, in order to see that kind of, that earnings trajectory reaccelerate for any particular reason. Um and in an environment where we have a more protracted slowdown that actually brings inflation down and brings wages down, the top line is going to get, um, you know, destroyed there, you know, way, way more than people realize. So, I don't know, the average recession sees earnings, you know, earnings down 15%. I mean, you know, the, the tightening this time around and the over earning that many of these tech companies had post-COVID I don't know, would suggest, uh, you know, earnings that could be down, you know, well north of 15%. Um, and I think Mike Wilson from Morgan was looking for, you know, 195 for this year, but has been shying now maybe towards his more bear case, which is a, which is 180 for this year. I mean, that sounds, you know, sounds more, sounds more right to me than not. Um, so, you know, what, where, What's a what's a what's a good multiple um, to put on you know a down double digit percentage uh, earnings year with you know not not clear where you get the the bump in in twenty twenty four yet either so I don't know yeah, I mean, they they have a they have a ten and a half percent increase um, in earnings growth for twenty twenty four but first we have I believe I mean obviously I'm showing you kind of my um, view of earnings, which helps stay in the trend, if nothing else. Um, this is a monthly chart of Gap SPX, and it has, you know, overlaid with an indicator. And when it's obviously trailing up above the indicator, uh, we have a strong market. Once it crosses below the indicator, we do not. And we obviously have crossed over um, in uh, recently, and now we'll see how this quarter does. Um, and the next, but I would not be surprised for earnings to continue to trade, I should say, yeah. to uh, reprice 
um, down and the realization that, that the value, especially in US large caps, they just look overpriced. So if 2023 earnings do not hold up in line with the analyst expectations, which are right here, right? This is that very short duration trough, nothing deep, and then right back into very strong, um, or I should say moderate, moderate growth and no recession. That's not what uh, this particular trend line tag, just even if you just kind of think, let's just come back out of COVID, right? <laughs> this was clearly the uh, the COVID bump. Um, lots of art have talked about the uh, the valuations, peak valuations, peak earnings. Um, I don't even think they've been they've been priced in yet. Uh, the the yeah, look, I, I think, levels I think, been priced in yet. I think you can, as I'm look, just looking at your chart here, man. I think you can even, you know, look at the the periods of time that you spend between the red line and you know un, under the red line. Let's say maybe you maybe you need another red line that runs parallel, but is under that red line to catch some of the the older ones. But under under that band, let's say, is when companies are under earning, um, and over that band is when companies are over earning. There you go. So, you know, you basically have these, you know, cyclical periods where, you know, earnings are, are under earning versus his, versus normal. And then you move into over earning versus normal. And I think what you see here is you have a period in, you know, let's say second half of 2020 and early part of 2021, where you have a, you know, a sizable shock that leads to a, you know, a quick under earning period for the economy. And then you have a rapid Reacceleration of earnings growth, and now you're into you know eight quarters now, or, or whatever that number is. Let's say six to eight quarters of over earning. So to believe that we're going to structurally over earn this this trend, which I bet you if you you know line up that trend and look at a you know nominal GDP plus some buybacks, you're talking about kind of a you know secular trend of you know mid single digit earnings growth. That's your that's your long term earnings trend for America Inc. And when you're earning 30, 40, 50% above that trend, you can only do that for so long. More capacity comes in, inflation comes in, rates get hiked. So a retest of that line seems, you know, very, very likely. It's probably, you know, you would even could even argue we should go under that line uh, for a bit. But let's say we at least get back to that line. And that's, I think all, that's all I'm talking saying. About, you know, yeah, <laughs> let's exactly, retest you know, one, the breakout. <laughs> right. So... And it's very hard what? to, and it's very hard to, you know, say that while that line is falling back, while that yellow line is falling back to red, that that should be a period of substantial multiple expansion. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, particularly when inflation is still running above normal. So that that to me is a, it, you know, is a major headwind for for equity valuations for the rest of this year. But that is not what the market is pricing in. So um, Steve Mann makes a, a mention that the irony of the chart being labeled GAAP SPX does GAAP, GA, you know, GAAP still exist in reported earnings. Um, I don't know what percentage of companies do report, but this is mathematically, this has been working extremely well for many years. So I've used this really, really well. I haven't had to parse out um, it just, it just works. <laughs> so um, I'm going to say that e even if it's not as popular anymore, um, it's still reflected in the uh, the indicator. So I, I'm going with it. But it, it, the question also in Q and I want to kind of go over some of those questions. Um, the 
question of what's the the, the trigger in mid-March. Bank of Japan. So Bank of Japan came out and did their um, massive, you know, support of their bond market in um, October 21. And then they basically widened, doubled their uh, yield curve in early December. So all of this has been fabulously um, bearish for the dollar and bullish for risk assets and bearish also for, for U.S. yields. So combine that with the fact that Kuroda is leaving um, I don't expect any changes at his last uh, meeting, which I think is around March 10th, but I am expecting the March 20th report, which is inflation, uh, especially around wages in Japan, to be market moving. Um, that's what I'm looking for. I've been watching uh, you know, Asian inflation prints and Australia, and oh my gosh, they're red hot. I mean, they're just really still red hot. There's been no tempering, tempering, tempering of that trend. So I think that's when we're going to have some um, move in the, the the dollar yen carry trade, and as a result, I think we could digest here uh, in dollar and yields for a while actually um, until we get to that March. We also have FOMC right potential disappointment, but we also have the Bank of Japan twentieth. Um, so that's and I also just think that some of these charts need some time to set up. Um, I just don't think it's a you know it's it's an immediate uh, reversion. Uh, to a mean type of trade, I think these charts need some some time to set up and basically chase out both bulls and bears. So, um, no, no, I, <laughs> I understand your question. I've been asked that before, Steve, so don't worry. Um, all right, so Hunter has all sorts of questions, and I don't know if you can see it in Q&A, Craig, but he's referring to thoughts of inflation resurgence, sugar, iron ore, aluminum, gasoline, lumber, as a result of the dollar dropping and the dollar yen, um, right, pulling down very hard with the dollar yuan, which is the reason for the season for a lot of the commodities. Um, despite the tech layoffs, they're not as big a component of general payrolls and construction layoffs have not occurred yet. So there's still a lot of backlog in um, single family homes and also multi um, units, a big increase actually in um, you know five units and up that still has not even turned the corner. They're still red hot. So construction labor um, or payrolls have not um, been hit yet. So this is gonna continue um, the theme of low unemployment, low unemployment claims until we kind of make up that that backlog in um in the construction so i don't see as much a concern on the tech layoffs as others um i'm more interested in construction unemployment that's definitely uh, my focus but um you had a question let's see last gdp report can you see his second question craig yep okay mm -hmm. can you answer that one on the gdp report So th this thing about, um, you know, th there's a, a thought that credit card interest um, rates moving higher, uh, you know, is, is a material headwind for the consumer. Yes, but I, I would say as a percentage of disposable income, you know, and, and, and debt, it's really not too dissimilar from where we've been at prior in prior cycles. So I, I wouldn't I wouldn't get too up in arms about how higher interest rates, you know, specifically are affecting you know, the consumer on the credit card side, I would just say, broadly speaking, though, um, higher rates, higher inflation is, is um, 
you know, is affecting consumer sentiment. So um, I, I just don't think it's it's credit. Like I don't think there's a risk in the credit card debt moving higher specifically as some sort of exogenous, you know, exogenous event. But look, I think real, real retail sales have not been very good. Um, and we saw that in the December print uh, that came out, you know, a couple of weeks ago. And um, I suspect we'll see similar levels of, of, of sluggishness out of the consumer um, from a real perspective, you know, here again in January and February. I mean, I know Visa and MasterCard and American Express had all kind of talked about a consumer that's been resilient. But mm-hmm. I think that's more of a, you know, more of a nominal comment than a real comment. Um, you know, as, as consumers are paying more for groceries and for, and, and for, you know, other kind of essential items, maybe spending less on uh, non-essential items, but broadly speaking, are still spending a lot because wages are up. It's just that impact and that um, kind of tie through to the economy and to corporate profits, um, I think is, uh, I think is what's being, was what's being strained. I mean, there's a, there's a sizable margin compression story, um, you know, going on. I think uh, Morgan Stanley had said that 80% of S&P subsectors now are seeing cost inflation outpace sales growth. So you're talking about kind of mar- broad-based margin contraction for, you know, 80% of the industries. And really the, the industry where we're not seeing it is in, is in energy. Right. I mean, Exxon, you know, 56 billion of profits or 59 billion or, or some, you know, monstrous number. Um, that's where the, the profits are. But out, away from energy is where we are really seeing. Mm. Oh, you know, yeah. If you take if you strip the energy out, we have a, a we negative print. I saw that. Yeah. Yeah. So that's um, also on the, the earnings compression question. I'm actually fascinated that we don't have more layoffs yet. In other words, um, I, the very first chart that I looked at at the beginning of the year was UNH, um, so United Healthcare and the rest. They started to sell off as the momentum rally kind of picked up. So that is that rotation, right, that I kind of showcased in that first chart. But they were they are bloated with staff, just like tech overhired during COVID, right? Lots of money, um, and they put it right into tons of hiring, and now they're feeling, oops, you know, we ate too much. <laughs> we gotta, we gotta purge a little bit slowly, and then it picks up a little bit later. But I'm really surprised we haven't heard of more layoffs in um, the healthcare space because they they be, that's a, a big factor for um, earnings compression. But otherwise, the prices have been pushed through. Right? They are. You know, you've heard of shrinkflation, so they might have um, smaller. Uh, goods that they're selling at higher prices, but people are buying it. You've heard of, you know, this, the volume, they might be buying fewer items, but they're still um, paying the higher prices. So, so far, the the major earnings compression, I don't think has really kicked in. Once we see it in industrials, once we see more layoffs in healthcare, um, and then of course, construction is, is a major, major tell, but by then it's too late. By the time we see it in construction, it's done. It, we've already we're already in the recession, like deep. <laughs> so, all right. What other question was? Uh, yeah, and and speaking of home builders, I'm actually right now they are sticky, like wages um, and backlogs and money that is still in the system. Um, even if invest, even if the the, the yields uh, the the thirty year was seven percent, and the the risk of the mortgage rate lock which just meant that 
those who could sell wouldn't. And those who could, like investors, um, were obviously going to have to reflect market conditions, which were softer. So we're definitely coming back and repricing those um, very, very uh, high premiums on um, it houses in certain areas, but it's so regional, region specific, and there's still so much backlog um, to work through that I think it's actually things over paper, which has been my theme, right, since that kind of March 2020, um, summer 2020, I should say, is still uh, uh, viable in housing. I, I'm not seeing the same uh, risk to the housing market because inflation is staying sticky, um, that I that I think other analysts are very fearful that we're going to have a housing crash. I definitely I don't see that. I, I can see um, risk of recession for sure. Let's see what happens with you know Bank of Japan with debt ceiling. Um, who knows geopolitical? Those are those are black swans. That I can't even comment on. But as it relates to payrolls right now, we're nowhere near my trigger of two hundred sixty seven. Um, uh, 267,000 unemployment claims. We're at 180,000. So until we start ticking up and have a trigger for ticking up higher in unemployment claims, um, housing is going to stay bid and the Fed is going to have a tougher time of basically getting wage um, inflation under control. And I just think that's it in a nutshell. Yep. All right, you had another, I don't know if you saw his other question. Well, I, see, I, no, I see another question here just about the, the setup for the Fed meeting and, and the rest of this week. And I, I did want to bring something up because I think it's worth discussing. But um, last Friday, I know you weren't, I don't think you were in front of your screen, but we, we yeah. had, when you had, you had um, the Tesla reported after the close on Thursday. So Friday became a zero day for expiry option day for Tesla, right? Because mm -hmm. so what you saw was just a tremendous amount. Uh, I mean, uh, almost not, not that it was a record, but it was millions and millions, you know, kind of more than we've seen in, in, in months of call buying um, for, for Tesla. And clearly Tesla is a poster child for, for risk-taking. It's a, you know, it kind of has, you know, it's weight in, in the queues and in S and P. And so it kind of created a, you know, this, this gamma effect that, uh, drove S&P higher. And then I think what we saw on uh, yesterday was just that once that came off the tape, um, you know, the market kind of reset on Monday. What you have on Friday, I think is going to put this Friday coming up is going to put last Friday to shame. I mean, what could happen this Friday is going to be has the potential to be like record option, zero data expiry option volume, because you have Amazon, Apple and Google all reporting after the close on Thursday, which turns Friday into a zero day for expiry trading day for all those securities. Plus you have the employment number in the morning, plus the follow-on from the Fed. So you're going to have just an extraordinary amount of notional transaction volume and notional dollars of exposure being traded you know, all day on Friday. I mean, the, the thing about zero day to expiry, and I'm not certainly not an expert, you know, on this, but it, basically if you're trading zero day for expiry, you don't have to post margin for that, you know, with that clearinghouse. Mm. It's just, it's literally, you do whatever. That's a really you, important you point. The hell you want. So, because so many people are accrediting the, the, the zero DTE as a retail phenomenon. It's hedge funds 
They don't have to post margin. They can get around it. It's, They're cowboys it's, it's and cowgirls right it's now. Institution, it's institutional players that you don't have to post collateral. It's basically, it's free money. Um, and so, yep. you know, we are in a, in a situation for Friday where you just have an extra, it, it, I don't know, it could just be an epic thing. And I'm kind of, I'm kind of thinking back to, you know, ja- end of January, early February of 2018, where you had that, that vol event, you know, it just strikes me like the setup is there for, you know, something similar possibly happening where there's, let's say if there's bad news, there's a hawkish fed, there's a, there's a constructive employment print and some bad earnings. And all of a sudden you have, you know, put buying and put buying and put buying and dealers dynamically hedging and selling and selling and selling. And then, you know, it, it could just be a, a wild thing where a dealer is caught off sides or whatever. So I'm just keeping an eye on Friday from a volume perspective and a vol perspective, just to, you know, are we, are we staring at something here that's massive? And if you look back to the, you know, the 2018 analog, uh, it was a very similar setup where you had a Fed meeting on a Wednesday, you had the big three report earnings on Thursday, and then vol started to creep up on the Friday. And then Monday was the biggest notional, not, you know, point down day. And I think in the history of the market, we were down 1100 points or something. So uh, I don't know. It's just one of those things to, uh, you know, to kind of keep in mind. All right. Well, I hadn't thought of it that way at all. But again, I'm I'm, I'm in re-entry mode. I will say that so far I see no market net selling. So one of the big deals that I do for clients is I track breadth and volume extremely closely, like hourly, <laughs> to identify when uh, conditions are ripe for um, going long and short and pressing long and pressing short. And so far, since Wednesday, the 4th of January, we have had just buying, net buying and solid breadth. So I had I had said last Friday, I did come back you know, for one day <laughs> and did two interviews. Um, and I, I said in both, I still think this is a fake breakout fast failure, but we haven't turned yet. Um, the closest I have is that chart that I showed you of the momentum uh, thrust right into resistance. I am still um, very bearish this year for one more leg down in tech. And I definitely know that that is not consensus. I think um, uh, there are like two <laughs> analysts out there that that have, have um, kind of that see lower, but I, I also absolutely, um, you know, respect that this risk profile is increasing for volatility. The problem is timing it on, like you just said, this kind of uh, perfect storm of earnings with payroll, with uh, FOMC, but it just doesn't have, for me anyway, um, a sold to you market feel yet. And I can usually see the distribution under the surface before the selling starts. It's called the divergence. I can see very, very clearly that breadth is way the heck up here. Prices here, there is a huge disconnect. So that alone is a, is a major divergence, no question. And then the, um, I was asked about TLT. I'll show that real quick, but there was um, the volatility chart that I also wanted to show that I'm expecting this year, but we're not there yet. Hold on, let me bring this up because I know we're also five. Hum dum dum. Gotta find it first. You know what I'm talking about, which is basically this year will have some, it has characteristics for sure for some outsized volatility. 
right now I'm not seeing the timing from a macro standpoint until March. I do see something happening very, very soon in oil and bonds. There will be a big inflection move in um, oil um, and yields, put it that way. And usually dollar goes long for the ride. But uh, yeah, I'm not finding that chart. So I have shown it to clients. So I know that I have it here somewhere. Anyway, suffice it to say, this is going to be a year where, ah, there it is. Open, open, share. All right, where I mentioned this um, a month ago, that this is definitely, we're coming into a period where volatility starts to get very, very busy and erratic as this indicator basically flattens out. So as long as this ratio is below this indicator, it is a bull market, baby. But as soon as it starts to get above and below, above and below, it is a coiled spring ready for some type of big move. So I am definitely of the opinion that we will have volatility. Timing it is another thing. I am also of the opinion that this is more akin to 2001 or 2008. We have not had our last kind of hurrah lower. Um, that's me. That's that's my assessment. This just happens to be kind of an example of the 2000 you know, 2002, this is, uh, it, you know, the same thing, 2008 uh, to 2010. So we're in it. I mean, we're just, we're definitely in a bear market. There's no question in my mind. Um, and anything right now that we are having, such as this most recent rotation um, off the January 5th uh, low is simply a bear market rally. So as it relates to, to yields, um, and dollar, I still see some chopping sideways with with oil, for that matter, with the exception that I'm expecting um, a sharp move uh, in the next two weeks for both oil and bonds. And I will share that detail with clients. And we want to invite you anytime you want to kind of pop in. Um, I run a fishing club. We're going to close it here because it's already after five. Um, I run uh, the fishing club product for Leduc Trading. And Macro Advisor is um, a post only in Slack that Craig uh, contributes his interpretation of, of what's coming down the pike in the macro and economic data. Um, and he also is concierge service for edge clients and sharing his entire book um, and also active trade support in addition to research around um, events. So we have it going on from macro to micro running a live trading room. I am going to be doing a live FOMC tomorrow just for giggles. I don't always do a live um, trading room for the public. I always have the, the morning session for clients. Um, and when I was out last week, I had three of my live trading room moderators um, sit in and they did a great job. I got some really positive feedback. So I've got a great crew uh, great deep trading dish, uh, desk also of nine contributors. So we invite you to check it check it out. And I, this will be um, uh, recorded. Uh, last one, I goofed, uh, didn't get it recorded. My fault. Um, you had to be here to, to benefit. And you would have seen this chart, for example. But um, the, the point is, this one will be recorded. We'll uh, load it to our YouTube channel. And uh, any parting thoughts, Craig, before I close? Because I just realized we're... Yeah. Five ten, Eastern. No, look, I mean, I, I think, uh, I think we know, yeah, I think we covered. Uh, I think we covered a lot of ground. I, I think, um, you know, the next seventy-two hours between the Fed, the ECB, employment print, and big three tech reporting. Um, I, you know, where this is a, 
you know, I guess a financial market Super Bowl, you know, for for lack of a better term, I think that we'll really get a sense now of, you know, the next direction. Clearly, coming into the year, you know, the markets have been euphoric uh, on, you know, an easing of financial conditions, covering from last year, just, you know, new money, new year. And, but now is where the, you know, the rubber hits the road. We really need to, you know, kind of see how the Fed is going to play this out um, with the data and, you know, my view, the framework revolves around kind of timeline towards Fed adding liquidity or contracting liquidity. And the market has been pricing in a an adding of liquidity. And I think they're going to push back uh, against that uh, in, a, in a way. And, and so, um, you know, the next uh, next few weeks are going to be, uh, I think, are going to be highly challenging, you know, for risk assets in, on, uh, you know, back of this. So. Yeah. And you're not alone in that, by the way, I have to just since you um, mentioned this, I saw today, in fact, that we have some other outliers here, a very rare signal. In fact, um, this is a Morgan Stanley chart that uh, global risk demand index has risen sharply and it's nearing a three sigma move, um, very much similar to what happened in August before we peaked and rolled over. Um, we have lots of you know, concern on some economic data, but that's not enough to kind of get so much selling per se. But I was recently also looking at the CTA levels. If I could find it, I would tell you. Um, here it is. So if we do have, if we do have some selling, a down tape, right? Um, the CTAs, which are kind of those automated funds that just kind of buy and sell based on technical levels, um, a down tape sellers would have 183 billion to sell. If we have an uptape, they're only they only have 49 billion to buy. So there's definitely more risk than reward should we come into turbulent waters come February. And last but not least, the fundamental long short hedge funds have increased positioning close to one year all in extremes. So basically this is a Goldman report that says they are let they are at gross leverage at 183.4%, which is a 99th percentile, and net leverage is uh, in the, the 73rd percentile. So we definitely have some um, exuberance that is manifest in the numbers that I just showed you, but we also have some risk of selling, should there be any disappointment. And that's basically the point. Are we priced to perfection on both Fed and earnings? And I think you and I are both in agreement that that'd be a yes. <laughs> yep. yep. All right, everyone, thank you so much for joining. We'll upload this on the YouTube channel, you know, to, tomorrow, the next day, whatever. <laughs> All right, cheers. Bye. Bye.